I'm going to read to verse 20, pray, and then we will begin to work through this together. This is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for our journey through this book. We're grateful that You have preserved your word. And that, Lord, we can trust that when we read it, we read the words that you spoke to these holy men that wrote it. And so, God, as we work through it this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use this sword, this weapon, to search our heart, search our motives, Lord, that you would lay bare, that you would expose God so that we can repent and savor Christ more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, he starts the text this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, with the word finally, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And that word finally there really, I think, is used to bring to the, mind, uh, the, the forefront of the minds of the church of Ephesus and to us 2,000 plus years removed of all the ground that the Apostle Paul has covered here in the book of Ephesians. Right? He kind of uses this word finally as a, as a wrap-up, as a wrap-up to this entire letter. It's, it's as if Paul is saying, in light of everything that our triune God has provided us, in light of the fact that, that your saints in Christ Jesus, in light of Christ's authority, in light of God's plan of of Christian maturity for you, in light of the fact that you've been filled with the promised Holy Spirit who secures your election, who secures your inheritance until until the day that you acquire possession of it, in light of the fact that you're ambassadors for Christ, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in this command, in this urging from the Apostle Paul, he's, he's not commanding us, he's not pressing into the, uh, the church of Ephesus here for them to be strong, for them specifically to be strong, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a command for you to be strong 
on your own two feet. It's not a command for you to meet God halfway, and it's not, it's not a command or, or permission for you to be passive in your walk with Christ. What Paul is pressing into and what we need to pay attention to is, is him saying we're to be dependent upon the Lord. Right? We're, we're a dependent people. It's in God's strength, in God's strength alone, that, that we're strong. And, and we develop that strength by using the various means that God's provided for us to grow and mature in his walk. And you'll hear me say this multiple times. You hear me say this almost every Lord's Day, but namely the word, prayer, and sacrament. The Lord is using those in our life as we gather as his church to strengthen us, to strengthen us, to allow us to, to lean in to God's strength. They're means by which we declare each and every Lord's Day that have a ripple effect on the rest of our week that we really are utterly dependent upon God for everything, for everything. And that's, that's counter-cultural to the way that our culture views strength and the way that we've often been influenced by that word, right? What the world defines as strong isn't, isn't what the Scripture defines as strong, right? To be a dependent person is, is not strength in the way that the world would define it, right? We're an independent, uh, autonomous, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of culture, and that's foreign to the scripture. We're a dependent people. We're, we're dependent uh, primarily upon the Lord, and the way that that's fleshed out is through us walking together as one body dependent on one another, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, if you've been in church life for any length of time, you've heard this, but Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he boasts of, of this thorn in the flesh because through this thorn in the flesh, God um, uh, showcased his strength. And he says, but he said to me, speaking, God saying to, to Paul who asked for this thorn in the flesh to be removed, he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Right? Be being strong in the strength of, of God's might is to be close to God. Right? It's communing with him, again, through word and prayer and sacrament. Strength in God is, is nourished in our time of corporate worship together. It's nourished in those moments of silence and solitude with him in the early mornings or late at night. And as Christians, we have to take care to nourish our strength in God, right? our dependence on God, because idleness drains our strength in God. Idleness drains our strength in God. Endless entertainments, right? Being an unproductive busybody, maximizing our, our view of our problems or people at the expense of minimizing our view of God by spending too much time worrying or too much time fretting. Right, we have a very worrisome culture, and in a lot of ways, we've allowed that to even paralyze uh, our worship of God and our view of God. We need to maximize, we need to do things that maximize our view of God. Right, idleness 
can manifest itself in developing habits of not gathering each Lord's Day with God's people, can manifest itself in not regularly digesting the Word through reading and, and meditating and memorizing Scripture. Idleness can, can um, manifest itself in prayerlessness. These types of things, they, they, they promote, they support idleness in our walk with God. And, and, and the result of idleness in our walk with God is spiritual bankruptcy, right? a depletion of your ability to walk in peace with God, right? the opportunity to be deceived by sin. And if, if you persevere in that idleness, you may prove that you never belong to God in the first place. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, we sing King David in, in a time of, of great distress, like in real trouble. And, and he comforts himself, not by manipulating or trying to figure out a way to, to get out of the predicament that he was in, but by being strengthened in the Lord. Verse 6, it says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, of killing him, of murdering him, because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Get this, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself. He, he, he gained a, a God-driven resolve to keep on going and, and to develop a peaceful walking with God. We have to be strong and the strength of God's might. Now, in this charge to be strong, to be strong in the strength of God's might, Paul charges the church to, to put on the whole armor of God. We see that in verses 11 through 13 in Ephesians chapter 6 here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. If you're taking notes, you could jot this down. The purpose of the armor is to stand against the schemes of the devil, to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I'll make mention of some of the devil's schemes as we go along in our text this morning, but here's just a sampling um, from Scripture of, of, of some of his schemes. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or if you backed up into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Or 1 John 5, 19, we know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's some of these schemes that we could even just lift from these few passages here is we see the devil blinding the minds of unbelievers. We see the devil disguising himself as an angel of light um, so that people sound virtuous, but what they're actually doing is leading people away from the truth. They're leading people away from Christ. We see leaders being deceived and leading people as well away from the Lord and his church. And, and the devil being the God of this world, it doesn't mean that this physical world belongs to him. Right? What, 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 should, 
what should not come to our mind is, is that the, that God, the God of the cosmos, the God who created Satan is, is in a uh, arm wrestling, if you will, competition with Satan, as if Satan is his equal, and it's kind of a, a back and forth tug of war. Right? It, it doesn't mean, Satan being the God of this world, it doesn't mean that, that Christ doesn't have authority, because Christ does have authority. The phrase God of this world, or seeing passages like 1 John 5 that say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, has in view this default godless disposition of every man, woman, and child born since the fall of Adam. Right? Apart from the intervening work of God, man wholeheartedly embraces the kingdom of Satan, which is at odds with the kingdom of God. But, but Satan's kingdom, and when we think about Satan's kingdom or when we work through passages that deal with Satan's kingdom, we need to be reminded that Satan's kingdom was, it was dealt a, a, a fatal blow, wasn't it? That fatal blow, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, was the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And ever since the resurrection, the kingdom of the devil has been shrinking in influence over the ages as the news of the lordship of Jesus Christ is faithfully proclaimed. Our resurrected Savior has authority. He has all authority in heaven. He has all authority on earth. And his remaining enemies, those who are devoted to the kingdom of darkness, according to Psalm 110.1, which the author of Hebrews applies to Christ Jesus, his enemies are being made his footstool through the proclamation of the gospel, through the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're announcing victory as God's church, as ambassadors of Christ to every corner of the earth, the victory of a resurrected Savior. And as we do that, as we go to every corner of the earth and announce this victory to every creature, we do so in the armor of one who has authority as our enemy, the devil, attempts to deceive and prohibit that message in the minds of unbelievers and make believers ineffective for the kingdom of God. But if the, if the victory is won, and we might ask this, why, why do we need armor? Why do we need armor if the victory is won? And, and one theologian puts it this way, and, and, I, and I, I, it was really helped by this comment. It says, our armor is a complete set of defensive and offensive armor. It's everything needed to wage successful warfare. It's the full resources the Lord gives to the believers so they can successfully wage spiritual warfare. And here's the part that I want us to tune into. But Christians do not fight for victory, but from victory. Right? Christians do not fight for victory. We fight from victory which means the armor that we wear belongs to Christ, belongs to Christ. William Gurnall, in this 1,000-page commentary that I have up here, he says, what is this armor? What is this armor? First, by armor is meant Christ. We read of putting on the Lord Jesus, Romans 13, 14, where Christ is set forth under the notion of armor. The apostle says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ till Christ is put on, we're unarmed. It's not a man's morality and philosophical virtues that repel temptation sent with a full charge from Satan's cannon. Again, the graces of Christ, these are armor. It's the girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the rest. Hence, we are bid also to put on the new man. And, and I agree with Grinnell there. Christ, for us, is in view. And, and not just Christ is God, but Christ is man, because as a man, Christ was tempted 
in every way that we are, yet he's without sin, Hebrews 4.15. It was Christ's deity and humanity that accomplished our salvation. And it's because of Christ's deity and humanity that as Christians we've died and our lives, according to Colossians 3.3, are now hidden with Christ in God. And, and all throughout this book, all throughout the book of Ephesians, as, we, as we've made our way, uh, as we've uh, taken this journey together, we have clear statements from Paul about what it means to actually be in Christ. Ephesians 1.1, the church is faithful in Christ Jesus. 1.7, in Christ we have redemption. Verse 11, in Christ we've obtained an imperishable inheritance. Verse 13, in Christ we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 10, we are created in Christ for good works. Chapter 2, verse 13, in Christ, those who were far off are brought near. Chapter 2, verse 14, to be in Christ is to have peace with God and one another. Chapter 2, verse 22, in Christ, we're being made the dwelling place of God. Chapter 3, verse 6, in Christ, we're partakers of the promise. Chapter 4, verses uh, 21 to 23, to be in Christ is to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And chapter 5, verse 31, to be in Christ is to enjoy this one flesh union with him. Right? Jesus, truly man and truly God, made it possible for us as believers to be in him. Right? This, is, this is what makes putting on his armor possible. We, we can strive by the indwelling Holy Spirit to walk in the strength of God's might and to walk in light of the victory that Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. Now, really quick, because I wanted to just show us something that I think showcases even more the authority of Christ and, and how the, the early church would have viewed the authority of Christ. Um, Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 11, uh, and, and it's the, the um, word here uh, he uses is um, when, he, when he talks about uh, the strong man. He uses the word armor in here. That's the same word that's used in, in our text this morning. But Luke chapter 11, verses 21 to 22, Jesus tells the story. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right? There's a trusting, if you will, in this story in the armor, which is why it's so significant about what, what that armor really is. And so in, in this passage, Jesus is saying that, that a strong man fully armed guards his own stuff, but if there's someone stronger than him, he'll overcome him and take away the armor. And then he interprets that statement by saying, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, I'll, I'll scatter you. And if you flip over with me then to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, you see the Apostle Paul, he says this, and, it, and it's this disarming language, if you will. In verse 15, he, speaking of God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is the same language Paul uses in our passage in verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. It says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. He, he announced the victory in public by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. 
right? Paul has said that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and shamed them openly by triumphing over them through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the strong man, not us. It's the stronger man. We're not, we're not the strong man. Again, we go to this, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Jesus is the one who, who steals the armor of the one who trusts in the godless armor. Jesus really is the one that, who scatters those in opposition in the same way he scattered the people at the Tower of Babel who trusted in themselves to reach God and become like God, a Satan long invented by, a, a, a scheme long invented by Satan. So again, to put on the armor of Christ flows from, it flows from being in Christ, from being in Christ. So let's get into some of the particulars of the armor just with the remaining time that we, we have this morning. First, we see the belt of truth. Verse 14 here, stand therefore <clears throat> having fastened on the belt of truth. And the, the belt of truth is what enables the actual armor of Christ to, to be put on. And several weeks ago, we, we spent a a significant amount of time talking about the word truth. Right? Truth is fixed. It's, it's immovable. It's unchanging. And ultimately, that's the case because Christ is himself truth. Right? Truth isn't something outside of Christ. Christ is truth. And we see Jesus call himself that in, in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So as the belt is fastened, so we're fastened to Christ Jesus. We share and enjoy union with Christ Jesus, who, who is truth. And we enjoy that union. We, we um, partake in the outworking of that union as we believe and as we're committed to and as we herald truth as revealed in Scripture. Nothing more nothing less. And then we see him here talk about the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14, uh, the, the second part of verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is a, a righteousness that, that's not our own. Right? This is a, a foreign righteousness. It's something that we have to be clothed in. It's the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. It's the righteousness of Christ that the Holy Spirit of God has applied to our lives. Matthew Henry says it in this way. He says, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is a breastplate against the arrows of divine wrath. The righteousness of Christ implanted in us fortifies the heart against the attacks of Satan, against the schemes of Satan. Right? And why is this important? Why is this important? Because one of the schemes of the enemy is to accuse you. It's to accuse you, right? John, in, in the book of Revelation, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren. The devil aims to remind you of who you were. And man, we follow that, that course of thinking so far down the road once we begin to succumb to that train of thought, Right? The devil aims to remind you of who you were. He, he tempts you to believe that your sins are not paid for. He, he tries to take your conscience captive by making you think and behave as if you're under the wrath of God. And, and this can come in the, uh, in the form of short little statements that sound true 
to us at times. Statements like this, you've gone too far, you, you, you've crossed the line, you, you can't be forgiven now. Or statements like the forgiveness of your sins is based on how perfectly you keep the law. Or statements like if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't struggle with this stuff. Or statements like if people could see your thoughts and the motives of your heart, they'd know that you were a fraud. God knows you're a fraud. We, we all wrestle with the, the accuser in some shape, form, or, or fashion. Charity Lee Smith, she was a hymn writer in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. She wrote a poem um, that was later set to melody. The poem was called The Advocate, but many of you probably know it as the hymn before the throne of God above. And, um, and I, in there, there's some language around this particular struggle with the accuser that I've, I've found comforting and I've sang to remind myself of who I am in Christ many times. But she wrote these words. She says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there. I see Christ there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, to look on Christ, and pardon me. The, the, the breastplate of righteousness is Christ's righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus alone. So when, when Satan, the accuser, when he reminds me of my unrighteousness, and there's not a week that goes, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not reminded of my unrighteousness. When the, when the enemy comes, when, the, when Satan, who's the accuser, comes and he begins to accuse me of my unrighteousness, I agree. I agree. And I remind him that my salvation rests in the, on the righteousness of another. Right? It's on the righteousness of of Jesus Christ alone. The next particular particulars of the, the, the armor here, we see shoes of readiness, this gospel of, of, of peace. Right, verse 15, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I can't help but think of the words of, of the prophet Isaiah when I read this passage in Ephesians. Isaiah 52, 7 the prophet says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. And God has saved us with what Paul calls elsewhere the good deposit. Right, he saved us with that good deposit, and he's also entrusted us with the good deposit. He's told us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to guard the good deposit. That's what he charged Timothy. He was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Guard the good deposit. And, and certainly, if that was true for, for that pastor there and, and, and for him to commend that to the church of Ephesus, certainly it's true for us today as well. But we're to be a gospel people. We're to be a gospel people. That is, a people of action whose actions are clearly grounded in the gospel of grace that's revealed to us in Scripture and entrusted to us by God. And the devil, 
Another scheme of the devil is his attempt to knock us off of this task. He wants to knock us off this task. If he can tempt us away with sinful passions, he'll do so. But oftentimes, one of the schemes of the devil is is to tempt us to commit ourselves to good, lesser missions. Good, lesser missions, right? If we are Christians stay occupied with advancing good agendas at the neglect of gospel heralding, we'll quickly become entrapped in a scheme that may alleviate some earthly sufferings for people, all the while their souls stay captive to the God of this world. We are by nature, we are by the very nature that God saved us and, and commissioned us to be a gospel people, ambassadors for Jesus Christ, committed to the truth and committed to heralding that truth, not in the way that we see fit, but in the way that uh, we are told to herald the good news. And so we're to be a people committed to gospel proclamation. And that gospel proclamation is a gospel without any adjectives in front of it. It's a gospel proclamation without any penance. It's a gospel proclamation without any prerequisites. It's a gospel where sinners find their confessed sin forgotten by God as far as the east is from the west because of the Holy Spirit's power in applying the person and work of Jesus Christ. So shoes of readiness, gospel of peace. And then we get into some of the takes, take, take the shield of faith, right? Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, right? The shield of faith would have brought to the mind, uh, to, to the mind of those in, in the church of Ephesus, just this Roman armor, not this small puny um, shield, but this, this shield that when they're behind it, it, it covers their whole person, if you will. Right, it covers the whole person of uh, of of the 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 soldier that's engaged in the in the warfare, if you will. But remember earlier in Ephesians two that Paul tells us that both grace and faith are gifts from God, and and Paul says here to take up this gift of faith. And I think one flaming dart, another scheme, if you will, that the enemy throws at us this side of eternity is doubt. It's doubt. Again, doubt that our sins aren't forgiven, or doubt that our sins are forgiven, but also doubt that the king loves us. Doubt that the king really loves us. Doubt that, that God in Christ is making all things new. Doubt that our king is really coming back. Right? And, and sin compounds this. Us wrestling with our own sins and being sick of them, seeing sin in our church, seeing sin in our culture, seeing sin in our government, a flaming dart from the enemy might go something like this. The husband, Christ, isn't returning for the bride. He's not coming back. Or give up. Persevering in these kinds of conditions are too much. Or God isn't growing his church into a large tree. It's just going to stay a tiny mustard seed. Or you've been forgotten. You've been abandoned. The shield of faith is the prescription that the Apostle Paul gives to this local church, the church of Ephesus, that's experiencing persecution, that's experiencing faithlessness, that's experiencing doubt. But like righteousness, right, like like 
the, the breastplate of righteousness. Their faith isn't something, our faith isn't something that we conjure up on our own. It's given to us by God, and it's nurtured. Again, it's nurtured each and every Lord's Day through word, prayer, and sacrament, and our commitment to um, daily walking with the Lord Monday through Saturday. And as we nurture it this side of eternity, I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day where I don't need faith anymore. And I look forward to the day when my faith becomes sight. So the shield of faith. Next, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, and the helmet of salvation. In Roman days, a a battle helmet would have been a leather cap studded with metal. And, And as effective as that may have been, the helmet of salvation is even more impenetrable. It's even more impenetrable because it signifies the secure, finished work of Jesus. It, it's, the tran- it's the transformed life that has a renewed mind. It's able to discern and resist conformity to this world because it's been washed in the blood of Christ. It's, it's the sanctified mind that thinks on things that are above, not on the things that are below. It's the peaceful mind that's fixed on God, Isaiah 26.3, because the person trusts in God. So we take, we put on this helmet of salvation that's impenetrable because it's grounded in the finished, unwavering work of Christ. And then finally, we take the sword of the Spirit. Here, Paul defines the sword, and it's our only offensive weapon. Right? We've been talking about defensive armor. We get to offensive wep- an offensive weapon here, and it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. That's our only offensive weapon. And the author of Hebrews describes the Word of God for us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. He says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As, As we battle from a place of victory, we do so with the words of our victor, don't we? We do so with the words of our victor. It's God's words, not man's words, that are alive and active. How dare we try to change the culture any other way? How dare we try to persevere this side of eternity in any other way? It's God's words, not man's words, that penetrate the inner person of everybody who hears the words. God conquers his enemies through the sword of the Spirit by either hardening hearts or softening hearts, the promise of God's word not falling to the wayside, right? Not returning void. And as Christians, we we have everything that we need to persevere this side of eternity. We have our armor because we have the God of our armor. And, and what he is, what he is, is ours because we enjoy as Christians union with him, an unbreakable union with Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. God, we thank you uh, 
God, even though we, we can't even scratch the surface of this passage of Scripture, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you for your kindness to us, God, that, that we can look at particulars of the armor and, and be reminded that possessing that armor is to be in Christ. And so, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith to believe you, to trust you, to repent of sin. Increase our faith to use your methods to persevere this side of eternity. Increase our faith to use your methods to announce the universal lordship of Christ. And we pray this in his name alone. Amen.